anything that's inaccurate, um, Doc Rosenbaum yeah. is actually responsible for. That's right. <laughs> seen that. So she was going to talk about alcohol use disorder. Um, so we'll just go through her slides. Sure. So this first slide is uh, just for you know how significant this uh, problem, alcohol use disorder, is worldwide, and it's sort of not a big surprise that Russia is uh, not doing so well with the alcohol, <laughs> and Eastern Europe. Yeah, it's uh, it looks like America's kind of middle of the road, um, and it's common. I mean, it's if you look at the top, the prevalence of uh, Alcohol use disorder is what we would just be thought of as alcoholism uh, in lay terms. So about 5% for young people and 8.5% for older folks. And then it varies. Native Americans, uh, unfortunately, have very high rates. Yeah, so uh, alcohol use disorder rates uh, twice um, the rate in uh, men as it is in women. Um, so it's not that more women, more men drink necessarily than women, but more men develop alcohol use disorder um, at about twice the rate. Yeah. Um, and this world map here is, is not on kind of rates of alcohol use disorder, but just kind of the amount of alcohol that's consumed. And so you see like, you know, again, it's just kind of interesting, like the Middle East and Northern Africa, which is um, kind of predominantly um, Islamic or Muslim, uh, which has a uh, taboo against alcohol, it's actually like a, it's not just taboo, it's, it's the law of Islam not to um, become intoxicated. And so it's very low there. Same thing with Indonesia, where actually nine out of 10 Muslims live. Um, but then very high in uh, across Russia and uh, Eastern Europe. And then um, high also in Australia and North and South America, both. And what you see down at the bottom of this graphic um, are some of the problems that result from alcohol and, and specifically why people die. So remember, alcohol still kills more people worldwide than all drugs, all the illegal drugs put together. It's our biggest killer. Um, and in New Mexico, we have the highest alcohol-related mortality in the country. Um, that's both for vehicles and outside of vehicular mortality. And so just to notice, so a third of those deaths are due to stroke and heart attack, what's called here cardiovascular diseases and diabetes. Um, and then unintentional injuries, that's like our car accidents, that's falling off of the roof, that's accidentally discharging a firearm. Um, gastrointestinal diseases, that's like liver uh, disease and liver cancer, but then also bleeding out through the, through the uh, intestines. And notice that 12.5% of these are cancers, um, this is something that, that surprised me. That alcohol really is a carcinogen. It causes um, cancer of the esophagus, esophagus um, a cancer of the stomach, and then if you get hepatitis um, or just kind of a lot of liver damage from it and you get cirrhosis, um, it, liver cancer, uh, which has pretty high death rates. Um, so lots of those. But then other things too, infectious diseases, because like if you drink a lot, you might be kind of passed out and you might be more likely to get a pneumonia as an example. So a lot of different ways that alcohol kills people um, and a lot of different ways that it causes problems even without killing people. Um, it's, it's pretty incredible. Yes. 
Um, so again, so somewhere between four and, and almost 5% of, of deaths worldwide attributed to alcohol. There are also probably a lot more deaths that are not attributed, but that are actually due to it. Um, uh, third uh, leading cause of, they say lifestyle related uh, death, which are just what we call kind of factors that we can change, right? Where choices are, are play a role. Um, things like tobacco use and obesity being um, ahead of it. <clears throat> um, huge economic costs. And, you know, so I hear about this all the time. So, yeah, if you're drunk at work, that's an economic cost, but that's not most of it. Um, so if you're real hungover and you don't go into work, um, that's a huge cost, right, uh, to industry. But then there's this other idea that of, so that's absenteeism. That's when you don't go to work. Actually harder to account for and probably even more expensive is what we call presenteeism. And that's when you've, you know, kind of, if, you, if you've been drinking the night before and you do go to work, but you're less productive because you're, you're not really firing on all cylinders. Your brain is tired, your body's tired. Um, and so we get lost productivity there. And then of course, healthcare costs are huge. Lots and lots of ER visits, um, lots of hospitalizations. I can't tell you how much this is what we're seeing um, in our hospitals and our ERs, uh, certainly where I work. And we're trying to figure out how to reduce that. Um, but it's tough, right? And this is, I know, something that comes up where um, law enforcement might encounter somebody who's intoxicated and they might be stumbling out into traffic. They might be, you know, there's a concern for their, for their, for public safety risk. Uh, but of course, for anybody who's not in New Mexico, um, uh, you might be surprised being intoxicated is protected by our state constitution. Uh, it is not illegal uh, to be intoxicated here. Public intoxication is not illegal. Driving a vehicle intoxicated is. Uh, but actually our state constitution, it's worded something like no law shall ever prohibit drunkenness is how it's worded. Um, and so, so well-intentioned um, uh, EMTs and uh, police officers will bring folks to the emergency room. Um, and it's, it's a tough one because they don't end up getting much, there's not much to do there and it's very expensive. Um, we are all overly familiar with the driving fatalities. And again, we have the highest in New Mexico, highest vehicular uh, alcohol uh, vehicular mortality in the country. Um, and then there's this really big important bullet here, which is that um, they at least say that kind of 30% of, of completed suicides are alcohol related and 50% of homicides are alcohol related. And in terms of suicide attempts, um, I've seen numbers much higher than 30%. I've seen like 70%. Um, intoxication in general is a really big risk for suicide, but especially with alcohol. And, and that's because things make sense when, you're, when you've got alcohol on board that might not have made sense before. And also alcohol has this amazing ability to sometimes make people happy or sometimes really magnify their unhappiness. Um, and then it, it's just can be so easy to pick up a firearm um, and, and discharge it. Um, and it might have been kind of intentional up until the end, but then we also make mistakes when we're intoxicated. And so huge risk factor for suicide. Um, also in general, so this talks about 17% of men or 8% of women. What we say in, in general is that about 10% of, of adults will at one point during their life meet criteria for an alcohol use disorder. Um, 
and uh, probably it looks like about maybe 1% of them will ever seek treatment. So, so most people that need treatment don't even seek it, um, which is, is a little bit different than do we actually have treatment available for those who seek it. Um, uh, this, and then the last bullet here is, is interesting. I was just reading about this earlier today, actually, that this is not true for all drugs, but, but in long-term studies of alcohol use, we actually do see very high recovery rates with alcohol. Um, certainly many of us know somebody who, who's not part of that statistic and they just kind of couldn't get away from it. But a lot of people will like have problem drinking. It lasts for, lasts for five years or 10 years. Um, but kind of 10-year use, we, we see very high rates, up to 50% of people kind of chilling out. That, in contrast to opioids, where with opioids, we see really low um, um, recovery rates uh, spontaneously for people who have used opioids for 10 years. Um, so there is kind of this phenomenon where people can just kind of get tired of all the problems that drinking has caused. And some people don't even need treatment, and they can stop. Some people need treatment. They need to like go to AA meetings or 12 steps or get together with their church and other faith-based resources. And then some people need to really engage with like a therapist or a, a, a physician or a prescriber like myself. Okay. Um, so a little bit um, about kind of risks. Um, so, so there are some interesting risks when it comes to alcohol for all drugs um, and, and including alcohol. Um, so it looks like it's about 40 to 50% genetic, a genetic risk for alcohol use disorder, meaning that about, about half of the risk comes from our genes. And this usually means that somebody in the family has had problems with alcohol, um, as long as they grew up in a place where there was alcohol, right? If you had lots of genes that put you at risk for alcohol and you grew up in Saudi Arabia and you just weren't exposed to alcohol, you might not have developed alcoholism, but then you move to the United States, maybe your kids do develop alcoholism because alcohol is all over the place here. Um, but it's kind of an interesting thing. It's about 50-50, the, the environment versus genetics in terms of alcohol use. Um, and there are a couple things like that. So, for example, it tends to be that people who have these genes that put them at risk for developing alcoholism, um, more likely than not, have a natural high tolerance for alcohol. Um, so if you're just somebody who, who just, you've always been able to drink other people under the table. Is that the right? Right, it's under the table. Yep. Um, then you, you might be at risk for developing um, a, uh, an alcohol problem, and so might your kids. Um, because of that natural inborn. And what that gets to is, is it actually relates to one of the, the environmental risks, which is just if you are, are exposed to large amounts of alcohol intake, um, which is what's called here in social norms. Um, so if your social norm is not drinking, that's protective. But if your social norm is drinking a lot, that is a risk. Um, where I see this a lot, for example, is in the military. Um, where when I was I was teaching a, the army an, an army group once about like standard drinks and how many drinks you know uh, a screen of how many drinks you have at once and if that puts you at risk for for alcoholism and so what we know for example is you can ask one question for men if you've had more five more than five drinks at one time 
or for women if you've had more than four drinks at one time, you're just statistically at higher risk for developing a drinking problem. And this whole classroom full of army soldiers just laughed and laughed and laughed because they were like, that's, you know, six drinks is, is getting started, <laughs> right? And so that's a social norm um, that, that really can have a big impact here. Um, we already mentioned sex, which now we all know we can differentiate from gender. It's written as gender here, but so <coughs> males, about twice the rate. Um, we also know that the younger you start drinking, in general, um, in general, there's some conflict, but that, that the more likely you are to develop a drinking problem. Um, and so, for example, what we do these days with teens is we try to encourage teens to wait until they're 19 to start um, uh, experimenting with alcohol and drugs. And that's just because statistically, if you start before 19, you're more likely to develop an addiction and less likely if you're after 19. Matt with APD, I, I don't think any law enforcement should encourage someone 19 to drink. So throw that out there. We frowned upon so, in our so, line of work. So, to be very specific, we don't encourage them to use at all. We encourage them to wait if they're going to use. But thank you for that clarification. Um, also, we know that a couple more risk factors, low socioeconomic status is a, is a risk factor. So uh, poverty is a risk factor. Unemployment is a risk factor. You know that being separated, divorced, um, or single is a risk factor? And again, these risk factors don't mean that it's a for sure thing, right? It just means that your risk is higher. Um, and then we also know that if you are in a, uh, an ethnic minority, and especially if you are a disenfranchised, it's, it's actually not just ethnic minority. It's specifically that you're a migrant. So, so you're new to a culture, and this is true in the United States and other countries too. If you come from an outside culture, um, and so you have problems kind of fitting in with the local social norms, your risk of, of developing an alcohol use disorder is also higher. Uh, so that's not just, just being a, kind of an ethnic minority, it's specifically that you're coming from another culture into that kind of parent culture. Um, and then also, sorry to leave it off, but any psychiatric illness at all is a risk factor. We haven't yet found a diagnosis that is not a risk factor for this. Um, there's a little variation in different ages. And then the biggest risk factors are um, conduct disorder or antisocial personality disorder. They have the highest rates. Um, PTSD increases your rate uh, or risk of, of problem drinking. Uh, ADHD, when it's not treated, uh, increases your risk of any problematic substance use. And then same thing with uh, like mood disorders like depression and mania. Um, and um, uh, certain anxiety disorders. Uh, it actually looks like OCD may be, may be protective, um, uh, but certain like generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, alcohol can calm down your anxiety, and a lot of people find that they can self-medicate with alcohol. So what is a standard drink? And I love this slide, props to her, because it says, what is a standard drink in the US? Anybody who's interested, I encourage you to look on your internet search engine for standard drink in Australia because we have four things here and, and you'll find like 30 different types of beers in the Australian charts. They're very sophisticated about their alcohol. But here's a standard drink and standard drink just means that these are all equal, we can say, in their alcohol content. 12 ounces of beer, which is 5% alcohol, now with all these kind of craft beers and these microbreweries. Eight ounces of like a malt liquor or kind of one of these, you know, I don't know what you call them, microbrews. Yeah, that's craft beers. Um, five ounces of wine. You find a little bit of variation. Some charts will say 
four, uh, four ounces of wine is a standard. Some will say five, some will say six, but somewhere in there. And then one and a half ounces of an 80 proof spirit. That's a shot. So this is how we can count drinks. So if you have three shots and two 12 ounce beers, you have had five standard drinks. You've had five drinks. And that's how we can just count kind of how many drinks you're having. Uh, so it's really helpful. Um, it's also helpful to know the different types of bottles and how many drinks they contain. Um, so I don't really like this slide. <laughs> We're going to skip it. Um, so what is alcohol intoxication? Of course, most of us know that. Um, it's really that you're impaired somehow neurologically is, is how we say medically from alcohol. You might have um, a, your balance might not be so good. You might have slurred speech, right? These are all kind of slowing down of, of your neurological processes. You might have impaired thinking, which means your thinking might be slow, but it also might be that you're disinhibited, right? Which is why you might be more likely to hook up with somebody, more likely to make a bad decision. Um, and it's an interesting thing that happens with alcohol too. So, so the, the short-term response, as many people on the network know, is that usually you feel good and your energy can be heightened, right? It's a, it's a reinforcing thing. It's fun. Um, and then the, the longer term effect, like, so let's say, you know, an hour later, if you, if you kind of don't have more to drink necessarily, you might start to slow down. Um, you might start to get kind of more depressed. Um, you might not feel as good. You're thinking you're, you're not as excited. And so, of course, lots of people will then continue drinking to try and preserve that excitedness, the fun part. Um, you can then drink to the point that you black out. Now, what's a blackout? I define a blackout as is there any part of that time when you were drinking that you can't remember? I think it's too... Too extreme to say that a blackout is that you're unconscious. Um, and the reason why we account for this is that the more like the more often you have you drink to the point of blackout, again, the more likely you are to develop an alcohol problem because that means that you're using heavily. It also means that you're at serious risk. Um, people who blackout and can't really protect themselves are at risk for being assaulted, robbed, um, uh, crashing their car. Um, stacked on. I mean, lots of problems here. And then, of course, too much alcohol can cause your brain essentially to forget to breathe. And this is one of the ways that people die. And this is one of the ways that alcohol, when it's combined with opiates like pain pills, like oxycodone or heroin, or uh, these benzodiazepines like clonopin and Xanax can be very dangerous because people can stop breathing um, and die in their sleep. <clears throat> Um, and this is a, a bit of a blurry slide, but just looking at alcohol poisoning deaths um, by state. And you see that in the West, we tend to be pretty high in terms of um, a death from uh, alcohol drinking. Um, and part of that is that there's kind of, you know, we have kind of a rock and roll Wild West culture, um, but we also have a lot of rural areas. And so you have less access to emergency rooms and stuff like that. Um, you also have... Um, uh, this would be other risks, um, uh, but you have kind of higher access to uh, firearms and things like that too, which are, are generally just dangerous when mixed with alcohol. <clears throat> now here's here's kind of so a, kind of a fun thing. Um, how 
what should your blood alcohol level be at different times, right? So I'm not very good at math, so I just go with the very easy that alcohol increases by 0.02 per drink per hour, or it decreases by 0.02 per hour if you stop drinking. So if you drink four drinks in an hour, you can predict that you will be at 0.08 on the breathalyzer, or that's the same as 80 on the blood alcohol. Um, so they have kind of a little bit geekier math here, but, but I just, you can do it different for men and women, but 0.02, here's the thing to, that's really important. At, 0, at 0.3 or 300, depending on whether you breathalyze or do the blood test, if you don't have any tolerance, you should be unconscious. And this is, I think, important for if we're taking people into, if, if we're arresting people and bringing them into custody. Because if somebody blows at a 0.3 or above and they are conscious, that means that they've developed tolerance and that means that the chances that they have a dangerous withdrawal are higher, um, which could happen after we, we put them in a cell, right? And, and we're not paying attention to them. They, they're just kind of acting kind of um, anxious or agitated and, and we don't know what's happening and then they have a seizure, hit their head and have a brain injury uh, or they die. So if anybody is blowing a 0.3 and they're conscious, um, they are at statistically a high risk of having medical problems as, as a result of their alcohol withdrawal. Um, and so what does alcohol withdrawal look like? First of all, it can start within 12 hours after having a drink and it can go up to really like 72 um, hours is kind of our most dangerous time uh, time zone, but really up to five days even. And the first symptom we call this, it's listed here as autonomic hyperactivity. That just means that their vital signs go up, that they have a high heart rate, they have a high blood pressure, that they're shaky, that they're sweaty, that they're feeling anxious, and they might be kind of agitated. Um, they're, they're, they're not feeling good and they're not looking good. That's the first sign from a medical perspective, that's where we want to start intervening and give them medicines because then we can stop the rest of it. They can have the hand tremor, the shakes. They can have insomnia, and insomnia can last a long time. People can actually have little hallucinations. We call it alcoholic hallucinosis when they're in withdrawal. They might see things, bugs on them. They might see textures moving in the wall, or they might even hear voices. And again, when I see this, I think scary. I think um, this person's brain is misfiring, and I'm worried that they're going to have a seizure any moment. Um, the psychomotor agitation just means that they're agitated. They're moving around a lot. They can't sit still. Uh, they might be annoying, which is why we want to pay attention to this, because we don't want to neglect them if this is going on. Uh, they can feel anxious, and then again, they can have seizures. These are these whole body seizures. Um, <clears throat> Now again, this is really done after a week at the longest. Um, this whole idea of going up to weeks isn't real. Um, there's this idea of protracted withdrawal and I would say I don't buy it for the most part. It's just physiology. Um, the, the biggest risk is in, the, is in the first 72 hours after not having a drink. Um, but it can go a few days longer than that, especially if somebody has liver problems, they might be um, kind of eliminating that alcohol slowly, which means that their withdrawal is going to happen a little bit later. 
And this scale on the, on the right side of the screen, um, I don't think law enforcement uses it. You don't have to worry about it. It's something we use in a hospital. Is the last one? Okay. So, so one one thing to talk about uh, with withdrawal is this idea of delirium tremens or the DTS. And what I encourage you to do is forget the the, the tremens part. It's not important at all. It's what's important here is delirium, which means that somebody's brain is misfiring. If, if this is the worst type of withdrawal that you can have, it's the most dangerous because it has very high death rates. So again, if, if somebody came in, maybe they blew 300, uh, 0.3 or 300 or above, um, and they start, you know, they were getting kind of anxious and agitated. They were getting sweaty, and now all of a sudden they're not making any sense at all. It's like they're psychotic, or they keep falling asleep and waking up, falling asleep and waking up. But you think that there's only they've only been using alcohol. You don't think that they've been using heroin or something like that. They can't finish sentences because they're confused. People who are on opiates, they might fall asleep, but they're not confused. If people have been having alcohol and it's been anywhere from, again, 12 to 72 hours, something like that, and now they're getting confused, they need to go to medical, they need to go to the emergency room because delirium tremens will kill them. Very high rates of strokes and heart attacks and seizures. Um, also high rates of actual brain damage that can result from this. Um, so, so they have all this withdrawal and now they're confused. Um, we're also more likely to see this if people have other illnesses, they have uncontrolled diabetes, they've had a heart attack within six weeks, they've had a surgery within six weeks, they have some big infection. This increases their risk of having delirium tremens or delirium in withdrawal. It's a medical emergency. Um, another thing to look out for is if their eyes were working fine before, and now all of a sudden they're kind of wall-eyed. One eye, when they look from side to side, only one eye goes. That is, again, a medical emergency uh, that happens in, uh, in, in alcohol withdrawal, something we call Wernicke-Korsakoff, um, and their brain is literally trying to die in front of you. We've got to get them um, into emergency room as, as quickly as possible. They're going to be confused and not making sense. They might also speak gibberish. So if somebody's been drinking, you think maybe they're in withdrawal, and all of a sudden they're literally like they think they're talking to you and making sense, and it's gibberish, emergency room. Um, the, the language center in their brain is starting to fry, um, and that's just one of the signs that we see. Um, and unfortunately, if we don't respond, that can become permanent um, if they survive it. So that's the most dangerous thing. You know, withdrawal from opiates isn't going to kill most people. Withdrawal from cocaine doesn't kill anybody. Withdrawal from meth doesn't kill anybody. Um, but withdrawal from alcohol actually can be very lethal. Um, and until we figured out how to treat it aggressively, um, a lot of people died from it. And now way fewer people. We cut the, the death rate at least in half um, by, by using protocols in hospitals. I remember... They, it wasn't that long ago that they used to prescribe beer. Yeah. So patients would come in for a surgery. They were known alcoholic. So instead of putting them on, on a protocol and withdrawing them, they would just give them beer, and that would stop the withdrawals. Yeah. Yeah. So it's now kind of faux pas, and we use these we use benzodiazepines instead, uh, or these things called barbiturates, like phenobarbital. Um, it, they achieve the same thing. It just became like politically. 
yeah, incorrect or whatever to give alcohol. Also, alcohol causes other problems, so so we can really control the dose of of a of a pill or or an IV thing. Um, uh, so, and this I don't think we need to see. This is just a, a picture of all the different parts of the body that alcohol affects, and it's a ton. This one's interesting because it points out the good things alcohol can do in moderation, which is a bit controversial. Yeah, yeah, what's moderation, right? Um, but, but certainly, I would say the, the, the dangers of alcohol um, far out, outweigh the, the benefits. Um, so uh, like all of our addictions, um, an alcohol use disorder is just that somebody has two or more of these 11 criteria. They're the same criteria for all addictions, right? They're using more than they intended. Um, they're having difficulty cutting down. Uh, they're, they're spending most of their time kind of using or recovering from use. They're craving alcohol. Um, and I, I run into a lot of patients say, well, I'm not really craving alcohol because I don't need it. Craving is just that you want to drink. That's all. It doesn't have to be physical or emotional or spiritual or anything else. It's just that you want to drink. Um, uh, it's a really big predictor of having a drink. So that's why we call it out. <laughs> so it's pouring a drink. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, uh, the next one is where, you know, alcohol is getting in the way of fulfilling your obligations, right? It's starting to, to impede your functioning. Um, uh, the next one is that your use of alcohol is causing problems with like relationships, right? Um, sometimes I'll ask people, hey, uh, you know, does your drinking cause any problems with your relationships? Nah. Then I ask, anybody not like that you're drinking? Oh yeah, my wife hates it, my mom hates it. That's what we're talking about. It's, it's causing some sort of conflict. Um, the next one is that you're giving up either social, occupational, or recreational activities, right? Either you're going in late to work because you're hungover, or you don't want to go uh, bowling because everybody's going to know that you're drinking again. Um, or you just don't like that you turn into a jerk sometimes. And so you're going you're gonna to stay away from people while you drink. You're prioritizing drinking over socializing. Uh, using it in hazardous situations like driving a car, going on your roof, uh, or, or playing with your firearms. Um, uh, continuing to use it despite knowing that it's worsening a medical or a psychological problem. It's a funny thing. You have to know that. Uh, by DSM, and then developing tolerance um, and having withdrawal. So you just need two of these in 12 months uh, to have a, a mild alcohol use disorder, four of these in 12 months and you have a moderate alcohol use disorder, or six or more and you have a severe um, alcohol use disorder. Um, so what do we do to treat it? All kinds of different treatments. And again, just to be clear, not everybody needs medical treatment for alcohol. Everybody needs it for opiates, but, but not everybody needs it for alcohol. Um, and there are different ways to do it. Some people's goal is I want to stop drinking. And some people's goal is I just want to be able to stop at two drinks. And I try to help people meet whatever their goal is. Um, and so there are different ways. There, there are, are group therapies. Uh, there's counseling or what's called psychotherapy here. Um, and there are medications. I would say there are others too. So there's group therapies like with therapists, but then there are also what we call mutual health groups, AA, Life Ring, Smart Recovery. These aren't led by professionals. These are just led by the people who, who show up. Um, and you can, it's the ones, the 12 step ones are based on 12 steps um, and, and the others are just based on kind of trying to, to work your recovery. 
And then there are medicines, a couple of different medicines. Uh, uh, disregard all the medicines in the bottom box. Uh, it's all, none of those treat alcohol use disorder. Actually, that's not true. Topiramate does, and I think jury's still out on gabapentin, but all the other ones are silly. Uh, but disulfiram, that's antabuse. That's the one that makes you sick if you drink. Um, it doesn't work in most people because most people stop taking it. They don't want to get sick. Um, but naltrexone is, is the most effective medicine we have. And that one, just when we drink alcohol, it releases endorphins in our brain, and that's part of why it feels good. And naltrexone blocks those endorphins. So it doesn't feel as good. It also reduces our cravings to drink, which again are, are such a good predictor. And there's a pill form of naltrexone that we can take every day, or there's a once a month injection of naltrexone. It's a big injection, uh, but you only need to be compliant once a month. And so some people really prefer that. Um, and then there's this acamprosate. Uh, acamprosate is a three times a day medicine. Uh, that's a big bummer about it. The other bummer is that the dose for whatever reason is 666 milligrams. <laughs> and some people are freaked out by that number. Um, when they are, I explain to them that it's actually two 333 milligram pills, um, and that's a real good number. Uh, and then topiramate or Topamax, uh, it actually has uh, equal um, evidence to a acamprosate, uh, at least in this country. Um, and then gabapentin, again, it's people are finding some evidence for it, um, but I'm wary of any medicine that people think treats everything, and that's kind of where gabapentin is these days. So. <laughs> but all these other ones are, are, are SSRIs do not treat alcohol use disorder. Baclofen fails on Dancitron, fails unless you have five people in your study. Right. So that's those are those slides. Any thoughts, questions? Yeah, we, we super appreciate everybody's willingness to do that. Um, so Dan doing here, we're going to do kind of a brief didactic and talk about um, uh, identifying states of intoxication and withdrawal in the field. This is something that we covered uh, maybe about seven or eight months ago. Um, and so uh, some of this is new and, and also there are uh, folks on the network uh, that are new too. So we're going to go through some cases and um, this would be best if there is some uh, audience participation uh, and especially from folks who are connected by phone or video. So if you think that you know what the substance is uh, after we go through the description, the field description, uh, please speak up so that we can so you can show everybody how wise and experienced you are. Um, Did you change them from last time? <laughs> some of them are changed. Okay. And some of them are the same. So if you know the answer because you've heard some of the cases, then uh, please hold back and give everybody else a chance to shine. He's nicely saying shut your face, Lawrence. <laughs> so uh, here's case number one. Um, so we'll begin with kind of a the call. It's a 22-year-old male. Um, and when approached, his, his posture is uh, slightly slumped. Um, and, and when he's walking, his, his feet are, are a little bit far apart, uh, what we would call a wide-based gait, um, and, and a little bit uncoordinated in, in his walking with some maybe swaying movements of his torso specifically. Now, when approached, though, he's able to draw himself up and able to kind of steal himself but then, and, and kind of come to attention. But after just a few minutes, that relaxes. Uh, so he's unable to really kind of con continue that. Um, some of his verbal responses are slurred at times. At other times, they seem to not be slurred. And on field sobriety testing, he shows this horizontal nystagmus um, and, and raises his arms uh, with the walk in, uh, in the 
it, with the turn part of the walk and turn test. Uh, so there at the turn, he's, he's putting up his, his wings, if you will, uh, but is able to complete the turn. So just to summarize some of these observations, he has a slump posture, a wide base gait. Uh, this postural ataxia, which, sorry for the medical term, but that's really uh, where he's kind of, uh, torso is um, moving, if you will, and not stable. And then a poor balance with the turn. He puts his arms out to, uh, to balance himself, uh, but is able to complete the turn, has some slurred speech. He can focus momentarily, but then the gaze softens. So the question to all the experts is, what substance might come to mind here? What do you suspect might be intoxicated with uh, with your field assessment? And if you guys are on by KT, just send it to the chat open. Does that just show up here? Yes. Up. Cool. So anybody? Uh, no wrong answers here. So uh, and, and who's that? Could you announce yourself, please? Chris Carvajal, Real Wrench, please. So Chris, Chris is, is saying, hey, well, what about alcohol? Any other ideas? I think alcohol is a good idea. Um, but what else might it be? Could it be a set, Rob the Buck, APD, could it be a sedative like lithium or, or something of that nature that has an adverse effect on his uh, mobility? So, so could it be a sedative, uh, right? So, And actually, lithium is a very interesting um, uh, idea. Uh, lithium toxicity can cause this, or also other sedatives like uh, Valium, Xanax, Clonopin. I think these are all perfectly good um, uh, candidates. It's a great idea uh, there. So, so right, so it's, I had alcohol in mind, but all of these work. All of these work for that, right? And the difference is that only alcohol of those three would uh, register as a blood alcohol level, right? Or might have the smell of alcohol. Um, uh, and then, of course, alcohol used with a bunch of lithium or used with a bunch of Clonopin or Xanax would make this even worse, right? Because they, 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 those are cross-tolerant. Great idea. So a couple little pearls kind of in the field. Um, and something to think about, of, of course, is, is maybe put yourself between this individual and the busy street. Uh, uh, people have this wide base gait. They, they put their feet far apart to stay up. Um, and in fact, they can sometimes do that even long after they, they stop drinking. Uh, but they can commonly stagger around it. And so there's a safety risk there. Um, and then a, an important thing here, and, and I got some of this pulled from, uh, from field sobriety manuals, have a low index of suspicion for internal bleeding, right? So very common for people who are intoxicated on alcohol to fall or hit their head and either not remember it or not really be bothered by it because they're so intoxicated and they can, they might be bleeding on the inside. So, you know, if you ask somebody to raise their arms and one of their arms goes up, and the other one's not going up so bad. You know, you might ask, hey, what's going on with that arm? Uh, maybe they have a shoulder injury. But if, if they say nothing, hey, it's just not working, think about is that because there's, there's a bleed in their brain and, and it's actually acting like a stroke. Uh, these are important things to, we might want to divert that person to an emergency room. Will the bleed in their brain show signs of stroke? Are you going to see stuff in the face? So it's a great question. So, so the question is, is, does bleeding in the brain look like a stroke? And it can. The, the problem is, it matters where in the brain the blood is not getting to or where in the brain the blood is building up and pushing on. If it's pushing on an area that, in, that is involved with motor activity, moving your face, moving your arms and legs, then you might be able to see something there. If it's bleeding in an area that doesn't involve moving your body, you might not see it. And, and this is part of the, the, the trickiness of, blade, blood, um, of brain bleeds. It's quite a 
All right, case number two. Great job on that one. 22 year old female. Call out, stop due to driving 25 miles per hour in a 45 mile per hour zone. All right, uh, when the officer asked for license, uh, mother's maiden name and registration, three things asked for in a row, which is a great technique from the field sobriety manual. Uh, she forgets the middle part. It's, it's, a, it's a great thing to do that I'm sure you all have been uh, trained on. Uh, answers to questions a little bit delayed, a little bit slow, but accurate. Accurate answers. Just takes her a minute. And on field sobriety testing, she performs physical testing without difficulty. Uh, the only uh, mistake that she makes is, is when she's asked to stand on her right leg. Uh, she puts her left leg up first, thinks it's kind of funny, and then switches, goes back to the right one, and is able to perform the physical task appropriately. So just in summary, driving slowly, turns out she has red eyes. I kind of should probably keep that out of it. Fails the divided attention task, where she's asked those three questions and, and forgets one of them. Slow responses, what we call latent responses in the medical world. Um, and then a little bit impairment on information processing on that psychophysical testing. Uh, any ideas? What could this be? We have some chat ideas. Marijuana, somebody suggests. Can you, can you pronounce that again? Marijuana. <laughs> somebody else suggests the weed. <laughs> Yeah. Now let's say let's what was say the other one there. A depressant drug. It says a depressant drug like the oh. weed. Um, so and 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 I mean absolutely. So that's that's what I had in mind here. But any other ideas? Let's say that the eyes weren't red. Any anything else that could could fall under this that we should be considering? Variation of normal. Variation of normal. I'm so glad you said that. It's <laughs> a great idea. Could it be opiate, but just light? I mean, not over, you know what I mean? Just enough to... Yeah, so, so Lawrence, just what about opiates, right? So so could this person have used some heroin or some oxycodone and be kind of, they're not nodding yet, but they're close to it? I think it's a great idea. Another suggestion in the chat about Xanax or one of those sedative hypnotics, those sedatives that we were talking about before. Absolutely it could. You know, and I, I think your variation of normal is interesting. I would even add to that, um, which is not a state of intoxication, but maybe somebody with a brain injury. Yeah, I'll do that too. Right? Uh, very consistent. So great ideas. Um, uh, and of course, this spice thing, uh, or K2, is just a form of cannabinoid, right? So uh, that's a synthetic cannabinoid that is far more potent than THC. Um, uh, chemically, just a little bit different. All right, so a couple of pearls. Um, distraction is, is one of the best um, things that you can use here. So in that uh, distraction test where you ask for, can I have your license, your mother's maiden name, and your uh, registration, see if they can get all three of those. It's a great way um, to test because divided attention is, is impaired with cannabis uh, intoxication pretty consistently. A um, little bit diff difficulty with information processing. And this can be a great way. So I've, I've saw a great video where this was used kind of to tactical advantage in terms of um, like if you need, let's say, let's say somebody was driving impaired, right? And, and you need to arrest them for this. Um, just kind of putting them through some motions of field sobriety, including like, hey, can you put your arms out to your side? Hey, can you put your arms up behind you and kind of bend forward a little bit? And they're perfectly positioned for you to cuff them. And they're not going to catch on because the information <laughs> processing is very slow uh, uh, with cannabis intoxication. Um, just checking the chat here. Oh, interesting. So uh, Randy Sanchez says, what about paint huffing, 
right? Or inhalant intoxication. That's a great idea, Randy. Uh, it can very commonly cause this. Lots of slowed cognition. Uh, the one thing about huffing uh, is that huffing tends to not last very long. So let's say that they were you pulled them over and maybe you saw a paper bag filled with gold spray paint in the car next to them, right? Uh, or they had a you smell uh, something uh, and they have rags next to them that might be, have like carburetor fluid uh, or carburetor cleaning fluid or some something like that that, that they might have been huffing with. Then certainly that can be the case, but but this will also you get them out of the car and you go through some of the paces and generally this will clear relatively quickly because you can displace that stuff with oxygen. But really a, a fantastic idea, Randy. Um, and then uh, something to keep in mind is that spice or these synthetic cannabinoids, especially cannabis can cause psychosis, but spice for sure can cause psychosis and agitation. Um, and so uh, one want to kind of avoid scare tactics if possible. Um, that's generally the way to go if somebody's psychotic or agitated. Um, you know, everybody's familiar with the, this case of this person who ate the face of somebody else in Florida, I think. And the, for whatever reason, the myth that's out there is that that was somebody who was intoxicated on these things called bath salts. Mm -hmm. uh, they actually had no bath salts in their uh, bloodstream, but they did have cannabinoids, um, including synthetic cannabinoids. It's probably spice intoxication. Uh, totally untrue, the bath salt thing. Um, have, Elder says, uh, how about <laughs> working graveyard and having court all day? Could that cause this sort of <laughs> Lack of sleep? Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Case number three. I'm just watching the time here. Um, okay. 32-year-old male encountered during a dispatch for neighborhood disruption. Disrupting the neighbors. Uh, male's hyper alert and agitated, raised voice. Um, does not allow the officer to enter his house. Uh, questions, motivations, his or her motivations for being there, right? Why are you here? Kind of um, asking these questions. When spoken to, constantly interrupting. Doesn't let the, the officer uh, uh, finish a sentence. Um, and in fact, at one time or a few times, is kind of distracted by movement um, and then is able to come back, but, but keeps on getting distracted off to the side. Um, and kind of a lot of sores or scars on this person. So just in summary, kind of hyper alert, what we call hyper vigilant, looking around, scanning the environment. In fact, any movement, drawing his attention away. He's agitated, kind of paranoid. Who are you? What are you here for? You can't come in my house. Um, somewhat distractible with a poor attention span and, and somewhat impulsive. And then has these what we call excoriations, the scratches on, on face or elsewhere uh, in the body. Um, we have three uh, chat recommendations that this might be methamphetamine. Methophrenia. Uh, methophrenia. Any other ideas? What, what, what other substance might this be? Well, the buck, just dovetailing, APD, just dovetailing on, on the, the meth hypothesis. Yeah. Uh, the reason that, you know, of course, one of the reasons that the scabs, uh, they just don't have time to heal because they keep, you know, they keep picking at them and ingesting the scabs because there's residual meth. I've tried it. It works. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's a natural high, right? Right. It's recycling. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't see that. That's funny. That's really gross. <laughs> any, other, any other thoughts? What else could this be? I, I think meth is a great idea, but, but what else could it be? Yeah. What might this be? Um, somebody said tweaking, and tweaking is typically 
uh, means uh, high on meth. Crack. So, so uh, Lawrence says, what about crack? What about cocaine? And, and ZLK said the same thing. Uh, absolutely, right? Meth and cocaine do almost the same thing in the brain, but meth lasts a lot longer. Um, their mechanism is slightly different, but essentially the result is the same. But meth lasts way too long. So Matt's NAP, I don't know if Dan, you could talk a little bit more about because I feel like if you take off the scratches on the face, yeah. Yeah. that almost looks like someone who's psychotic. So great point. And I'm so hoping somebody says this. So, so it might not be intoxication at all, right? They just might be psychotic um, for, for whatever reason. It could be an underlying schizophrenia. It could be a stroke causing this, right? This could be um, a, a, a brain degenerative disease causing this. So absolutely. What about PTSD? How do you tell the difference, though? Could be PTSD. So great question. How do you tell the difference? So one is through history, right? Where you're using meth. Right. So, yes, I was using meth and now I'm like this. That's one way. Uh, but and then the other way is is by looking for meth in their in their urine. Right. And finding the meth. There. There's there's not a, a way. I will now <laughs> search. Just in look this. in there. <laughs> you just look with your eye. No, no, it's 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 testing for methamphetamine. Um, and there is no other way to know. So if let's say that they are not open or transparent with their history, right? let's say that they don't have track marks um, from shooting up meth or, or uh, you know, you don't find any like meth pipes or anything like that. Uh, you can't know the difference. And in fact, we treat them the same and the guidelines now say you treat them the same, whether it's kind of schizophrenia type psychosis or meth intoxication. Um, and obviously if there's also a meth use disorder, you treat that. Um, but you can't just, you can't know just by looking at it. There's not one distinguishing characteristic because the psychosis that meth can cause can look identical to the psychosis from something like schizophrenia. Now, I've noticed that. I don't know if this is just my own observations or if it's just not even based on, on reality here. Because uh -huh. someone is right about peeing. Um, yeah. I notice a difference in the, in the states of agitation. Right. I feel like if someone is intoxicated and we look at it and we think it's even if it's spice or, or meth, their agitation is, is almost unpredictable and sporadic. While it seems like a lot of times we were dealing with someone and it seems like the main cause might be mental illness, they're agitated, but it could be pacing in one spot. Right. It's almost <laughs> somewhat contained. I don't know how to describe yeah. it. No, and I hear what you're saying. In my experience, there's, they're not consistently one camp or the other. Okay. Uh, people who are high on meth, especially, and of course there are different times in the meth use, right? Right. So like I just used meth. Um, it's kind of go, 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 right? But I've been using meth for the last two days, and it's still circulating in my bloodstream, but I'm really tired. They might be able to sit down and then get up and pace, right? And then sit down and, and kind of episodically be agitated. And so, um, and when it's been looked at kind of in, in, in good field research, there's not, you, you just can't differentiate uh, with something other than a, a drug test or the history. Question if I mean, so uh, you announce yourself. No, so, so <laughs> Rob the Bucky. Thank you. Thank you, Doctor. So uh, the, the brain scans, the differential in the brain scans as as far as an organic, which schizophrenia, if you take out the drug component, if, if they're not on any drugs at all, the organic disruption it would cause to the to the brain waves versus the synth synthetic disruption that would be caused by a mess. Methamphetamine, 
what, what, what difference would we see or would we see a difference? Or? It's a great question. So we're not at the point that we can tell either one from a brain scan. We can't diagnose schizophrenia with a brain scan and we can't diagnose meth intoxication with a brain scan. Um, there are some there are some findings that people have like found in some people with schizophrenia in brain scans, but not everybody with schizophrenia has those findings. Um, and so we're just, we, that's not a useful way to, to differentiate. Yeah, unfortunately, it's a great question though. So any other drugs that can cause this though? What else might cause this sort of a presentation in terms of a drug? We got meth, we got cocaine, any other types of stimulants that are out there? Caffeine. So caffeine, I guess it could, it, it could. There is this thing called caffeine intoxication, but it usually doesn't get this far. Like ca caffeine intoxication is where you drink caffeine and you might have a panic attack or your heart palpitates, uh, you get tremulous. Um, it's pretty rare that it would cause this level of agitation, but um, I guess if you had a whole, whole bunch and, and you didn't have, you didn't make the enzyme that broke it down, I guess it's possible. What about that accompanied with lack of sleep though? Say you've been up for a long time and sure. you're using like that, what he's drinking. No, absolutely. <laughs> so date, so, so fatigue plus a lot of caffeine can absolutely push you over the edge. Can't something like this happen, Rob Garnand, can't something like this happen too if they're in a psychotic state and they also use marijuana? So absolutely, it. Yeah. perfect, perfect, absolutely. So somebody who has schizophrenia and uses cannabis can totally, it can exacerbate the psychosis and it can look just like this. Um, TJ Camacho in Las Cruces says, what about PCP, right? Angel dust or fencyclidine can absolutely present like this. Fortunately, that's a drug that's going away naturally because most people did not like the high. Um, and I'll just uh, give away the other. So just like I hope happens to bath salts, which is something else that can cause this. Bath salts um, are essentially what, something that we call an amphetamine type salt, which is really a new classification for drugs. And these are the drugs of the future. Uh, amphetamine type stimulants uh, includes meth, it includes bath salts, which is made from something called cot, that is a plant that's grown like in the uh, like in Yemen and, and uh, that part of the world and Somalia. yeah, Somalia, absolutely very big and Somali population and contains this thing called uh, cathinone uh, and you can make a meth cathinone just like changing an amphetamine into meth amphetamine or just amphetamines, right? You can take a bunch of Adderall and have this sort of an, an experience. All right. Um, a couple pearls with amphetamine type salts. Uh, that agitation can totally escalate very quickly. Um, it can go back down, it can come back up. We see this because the, the blood levels kind of wax and wane. Uh, very commonly causes psychosis. We meet these people in psychiatric ERs all the time. Um, uh, that impulsivity can, can really kind of, right, they can reach for you, they can reach for your gun. So you, you want to maintain a safe distance if somebody's agitated, period. Um, uh, and this is no exception to that. And amphetamines can blunt the pain response. So they might not be as responsive to painful stimuli. Um, I might not be able to report it as consistently. And, and here's a big thing. So these amphetamine type stimulants, cocaine, meth, they kill a lot of people. Um, and they, they cause heart attacks and they cause strokes. Um, and I've, I've reviewed cases where somebody was brought into custody, high, high, high on meth, 
they didn't even talk about chest pain necessarily because they were so high on meth uh, and then died very quickly. So if somebody is talking about chest pain, uh, you want to take it seriously. And I think it can be a challenge because sometimes uh, we can be very annoyed or frustrated by this point in, in an interaction with somebody who's acting this way. So we do want to be sensitive to any uh, mention of that because um, that's the most common way that these kill people. Uh, is they, they cause these rhythms in the heart that are not compatible with life. So I'm going to jump ahead here for a second because we're running out of time. And we all know about opioids. Um, and we're going to go not to that, but case number seven. This will be all our last case. Uh, so uh, there's a call out to MATS or any other kind of public inebriate um, program uh, to pick up a 43-year-old male. Uh, he's been there for 24 hours, and, and after about 24 hours of, of being in this um, uh, kind of a, a drunk tank, if you will, or a, a public inebriate program, uh, started becoming agitated, started pacing, becoming belligerent. Uh, in his agitation, he assaults staff. And breaks a window. He says, they're eating me alive. Right? He's, he's kind of over the edge here. Um, and during transport, uh, he has a seizure in the patrol car. Uh, so a couple observations here. About 24 hours after not drinking, he gets agitated and psychotic and has a seizure. What do folks think might be going on here? Alcohol withdrawals. So one suggestion for alcohol withdrawal. What else? Anybody else on the network have any idea what, what, what else could be going on besides alcohol withdrawal? DJ Camacho, CPD. Um, diabetic. Interesting. Okay, so, so uh, this could be a, uh, like a hypoglycemia um, uh, where the blood sugar level goes way too low and then they kind of are becoming agitated and don't have a seizure. It's a great idea. Uh, Xavier also uh, suggested his self-medication of, of kind of drinking as self-medication is wearing off and maybe he's psychotic under, underlying all that. And that psychosis was being um, blunted with the alcohol use or substance use, and then now that that's worn off, maybe the, the psychosis is coming back. It's also a very interesting idea. Although psychosis itself won't cause a seizure, uh, but a very interesting idea. So that also could be something that's going on here. Nikki, could you guys hear me? Okay, Nikki uh, suggested a, a brain injury, right, which would put somebody at risk uh, of all of this when they stop using. Yeah, question or, or idea there on the network? How about excited delirium? I was just waiting for this phrase to come up. <laughs> Man, law enforcement loves talking about excited delirium. <laughs> so this, um, so yes, um, I think you could call this excited delirium um, uh, because he, he's agitated and not kind of losing consciousness um, and is certainly at risk here of this thing called delirium tremens. Uh, so the only, another substance that comes to mind uh, would be withdrawal from a benzodiazepine like Xanax 
um, Xanax especially, which has the highest seizure rate of all of those medicines. And other things, Ativan and Klonopin uh, can cause this. Valium is the least likely to cause this because it, it comes off so slowly. It's actually very safe from a seizure uh, perspective. Uh, Xanax is high on that list. So great, all of these ideas. Um, uh, and it's written as alcohol withdrawal, but, but all of these could be uh, could play a role. And somebody, for example, with a history of brain injury is more likely to experience this, this complicated withdrawal uh, from alcohol. Um, and at this point is, uh, is a hospital diversion call. Um, so if somebody has, especially coming from a place like Matt, somebody has a history of drinking, if they've had a seizure, um, they are at risk of having this thing called the DTs. So it's just, I think, helpful to understand alcohol withdrawal. The first symptoms can happen in like, you know, the first like six to 24 hours. It's like increase in vital signs. People can have fast heart rate. They can have high blood pressure. EMS is on the scene. Maybe they report this. They can be sweaty. They can be shaky. These are early warning signs. You want to respond at this point. Uh, then they can have a seizure anywhere from 24 to 72 hours. Um, uh, and the seizure itself can be dangerous, but if they've had a seizure or if they're having one, they're really, the, the risk is, is high that it even gets worse and, and it becomes this thing called delirium tremens or DTs. The, the word that most people fixate on with DTs is the tremens and I would suggest to you that is not an important word at all. The important word here is delirium. So this is where somebody in alcohol withdrawal starts having psychosis, they might have hallucinations. They have memory problems, even uh, they can start having like goldfish memory, like uh, not remembering things that, that was said to them five minutes ago this is a very concerning sign. Um, the biggest one here, inability to maintain consciousness, like they're alert and then they kind of slump down and go to sleep and then they're alert again, super dangerous, big warning sign. The agitated delirium or excited delirium is where that doesn't happen, but they have all these other symptoms. Um, delirium tremens, uh, in plenty of studies has like a 50% lethality. Um, this is an absolute medical emergency. These people need to be brought to an emergency room or if EMS is on the scene, EMS can give them a, a benzodiazepine. They can give them a shot of Ativan, which is the best thing that they can do to try and uh, decrease lethality and then again, transport them because they need to be stabilized in a, probably in an ICU if they're at this point. Um, so that would be a good reason not to bring somebody to but bring them to uh, to an emergency room setting. So good job, uh, tons of uh, clear experts on the network.